0: This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense.
1: And you should know better.
0: Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes.
1: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. You know, I say that every week. I've said that since this show began almost six years ago, but I really, really mean it this week. Why? Because for the very first time in the takeout show history, we're in my hometown. We're in San Diego. America's finest city, and that is no joke, ladies and gentlemen. I'm here on a separate assignment, but as luck would have it, one of the Congress people from San Diego, there's a couple of districts here, currently the 53rd district representative is Sarah Jacobs, she's our special guest. She's running for a re-election, though, in the 51st District, correct? That's right. We are in North Park in San Diego. Our host restaurant is the Original 40 Brewing Company. I believe Original 40 is like the original 40 acres of North Park or something like that. It's, as you can tell behind me, a place where they make lots and lots of beer. I'll be having water, and I think the congresswoman will too. But as I hear it, lots of great beer sold and consumed here. So, congresswoman, uh, great to see you. We met for the very first time last Friday in front of the Supreme Court. I know why I was there. Why were you there?
2: No, I was there because as a young woman and uh, as one of the few women of reproductive age in Congress, the decision that the Supreme Court put out overturning Roe v. Wade felt very personal to me. It felt like uh, some radical justices think they know more about my health care and my body than I do. And it felt important to go and to stand with our community as we fight back for our rights.
1: And when you say one of the few members of Congress of reproductive age, I think my audience know what you, knows what you mean, but lay it out for them.
2: Yeah, so I'm uh, the second youngest woman in Congress. I'm, How old are you? I'm 33 years old. Uh, I first got sworn in when I was 31. I've had a few birthdays this term. Um, but, you know, it, it hits a little bit differently when it's my health care they're talking about. You know, reproductive health care is my health care.
1: And is there anything about this decision that in addition to generally thinking about it, you are specifically thinking about as it relates to your healthcare and your choices.
2: Well, absolutely. Uh, So, uh, earlier in my term last year, I uh, froze my eggs. um, So that I could make choices about when and how I want to start my family. And I think every person deserves the right to have all of the options available to them of when, how, and if they want to start their family. Um, And, for instance, I'm working on a bill right now Mm -hmm. um, that will protect reproductive and health data because I use a period tracking app, and so I'm worried about my data in the app, and and that's why I'm making sure that we're putting in place these protections because the the post-row world is just not going to look like the pre-row world.
1: So let's break a couple of these things down because one of the things... as you might have gathered, I love to do with this show, is really let people immerse themselves in specific issues as it relates to either their lives or our guests' lives. So you said two things that are really important. You set aside your eggs, so you are fearful, as I gather, as I hear you, that this decision could influence in vitro fertilization or the or the sa- storing and saving of eggs. Why do you have that anxiety?
2: Well, um, we know that uh, part of what they want to do in this decision. They they previewed that this is only the first of many rights they plan on taking away. Uh, And we know that in many states, depending how they write this anti-abortion language, it could have real impacts on IVF, on embryo storage. Uh, I'm very fortunate to live here in California, but if Republicans get in charge of Congress and pass nationwide bans, uh, federal bans with no exemptions, like that can still impact us here in California.
1: So something you planned and thought through in a Row world, you are now having to rethink and be anxious about in a post-Row world.
2: Exactly right. And it's all sides of the same coin. Like I, di- I froze my eggs so I could choose when it makes sense for me to start my family and have agency in that decision. And that's the same agency I expect to have if I decide that it's not, now is not the right time to start a family.
1: You mentioned another thing I want to drill down a little bit on. You talked about data and a period tracking app. All right, I'm a 59 year old man, help me understand.
2: Yeah, so uh, many people use period tracking apps or fertility tracking apps. It helps tell us when we should expect our period. For many people who have chronic illness, it can be a really helpful tool in how to manage that chronic illness. Um, and these, these are important services that, that really help people. But right now there's no protection for that data. So we know that these companies can sell or share this data uh, to anybody.
1: And you want to do what with that data?
2: So what my bill would do is any- What's it called by the way? It's called the My Body, My Data Act. Okay. And it would say any of this data, any reproductive or sexual health data. So from these apps, from website searches, from wherever, it's not only about periods and abortions, it's also if someone is searching about a sexually transmitted disease. Any of this data, the companies could only collect and retain what is strictly necessary to provide the service. I could ask for my data to be deleted at any time. Uh, we have the FTC as the enforcement mechanism, but I, as an individual, also have a right to sue if I feel like my data is being misused.
1: If this legislation is passed. If this
2: legislation is Currently passed. Currently you have
1: none of those protections Correct. or guarantees. Correct. And help me understand and thereby help my audience understand what you're anxious about this data becoming fodder for.
2: So. One of the huge implications of this decision in the Dobbs case is the privacy implications. Because how is the government going to know that you've had an abortion? Either you have to have your health data be allowed to be shared by hospitals and doctors, which right now you're protected from.
1: Under the HIPAA laws. Under the
2: HIPAA laws. Although there are some exemptions in there that we do need to fix for these cases. Or they're going to track you. They're going to figure out a way to figure out if you should be pregnant but aren't. Um, They have access to all of this data now. So I'm worried that the attorney general in Texas might decide that he wants to figure out everyone in Texas who should be pregnant but isn't and can easily access or buy or get this data and create that digital surveillance architecture.
1: And do that for anyone leaving Texas for, say, California.
2: Exactly. Exactly. A
1: state that has made it clear, as Governor Gavin Newsom has this week through an executive order, if you come to California, you are not only safe, but we will not participate or cooperate with any investigation, but what you're saying is, with this data tracking, California may not have to.
2: That's exactly right. Right now, I as, a Cali- now, as I understand it, yeah. most of
1: these companies we're talking about are based in California.
2: That's right. And but there, you need
1: federal legislation. You need
2: federal legislation. There is a California data protection law in place. It protects Californians, okay. but if you are visiting California from another state, you are not protected under the California law. And because this particular kind of data has some specific needs, it, even still, we would need this to, in addition to the California law. So, for instance, most big data privacy bills exempt small organizations because you don't want to put an undue burden on small businesses. But for reproductive and sexual health data, I actually have a fear that small right wing nonprofit groups might be the ones who buy and try and access this data. Because we know, for instance, again, in Texas, they have this bounty law where they actually can get money for turning someone in who's had an abortion.
1: Right. So you fear that small nonprofits historically and typically, and for good reasons, exempt would be little hives of this data and then hand it off to attorneys general or county prosecutors.
2: Exactly right.
1: Wow. That's sort of head spinning in several different ways. Uh, As I understand it, uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi has been complimentary of this legislation. Do you have any expectation or guidance as to when it might be on the floor?
2: So we have uh, co-sponsors from across the ideological spectrum of the House caucus. Um, Leadership has expressed a lot of interest in it. We also have a Senate companion bill being led by Senators Hirono and Wyden. Um, And I've been talking with leadership and we're hopeful that, uh, you know, it will be part of the package we bring forward that will be our response to this decision. Um, The speaker has said she wants to do something on reproductive health data as one of our main responses. And I think that that's great because this is one of the things we can do right now that will protect people in these states that are criminalizing abortion as we're working on codifying Roe v. Wade and all these other things we need to do.
1: What have you heard from the White House about this legislation? White
2: House is very excited about it.
1: The president would sign it if it got to his desk? Yes. You've been given those assurances?
2: Uh, I've been in close contact with the White House Office of Gender that's doing a lot of work on figuring out what more we can be doing to respond and they're very excited about this bill.
1: And so this package of legislation might be on the floor in July? That's the hope. That's what the speaker has sort of given the indication of. And my experience with Speaker Pelosi is when she indicates, she almost always follows through. That's right. Especially when the votes are there. That's right. As they will be for this. I think so. My name is Major Garrett. Segment one of The Takeout is now concluded. We're heading to segment two. We are in my beautiful, fantastic hometown, America's finest city. Remember, Anchorman. It's a documentary, not a comedy. Segment two in just a second.
0: From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
1: Welcome back to The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. Sarah Jacobs is my special guest. She is a member of Congress in her first term. And no, we didn't coordinate and write a memo about the outfits, the blue blazer and the white shirt thing. It's just a kind of accident. Maybe it's part of what San Diegans do when we get all dressed up. Anyway, Original 40 is our host restaurant. We'll have a little bit of food. It's a great brewery, I am told. We're just going to go with water to keep it on the safe side. So we're going to talk about a lot of other things, but I do want to continue ever so briefly the, con- the conversation on reproductive health. Now, I want to have you address a couple of things. One, Republicans believe they're going to win control of the House of Representatives in these midterm elections, and they have an agenda. What are you thinking about that agenda? What do you want my audience to know about that? And you're also addressing an audience that spans the country, includes a lot of right-leaning and Trump supporters, so talk to them.
2: Yeah, look, the majority of Americans, even including the majority of Republicans, want Roe v. Wade to be the law of the land and do not think that it was the right move to overturn Roe v. Wade. Because even if you yourself don't believe that you would ever have an abortion, you know that in your doctor's office, there's no room for the government. And that a woman should have the right and the freedom to make that decision with herself and her doctor about what is right for her body and her family.
1: And I have met many voters in my lifetime covering politics, basically started in 1990. My first presidential campaign was 1992. I've met a lot of single issue so-called pro-life voters who describe themselves that way. I've never met, meaning when I say single issue, that's their issue. And they vote on that, and I think I'm using this term correctly, religiously. There's a fervor about them, there's an intensity, there's a focus about them. They're entitled to that, they believe it profoundly. I say that with all due respect. I will tell you, Sarah Jacobs, I have yet to meet, but this may be changing, a single issue pro-choice voter. Meaning... Yeah, that's important, but so were a lot of other things. And I wonder if now that will tilt. What do you think?
2: I think that's exactly right. Look, we've been trying to warn people for a long time that part of the Republicans in Washington's agenda was to overturn Roe v. Wade. And I think people were very complacent and comfortable in the fact that this had been a right for 50 years, that multiple Supreme Courts, including ones that were predominantly appointed by conservative presidents, continued to uphold that right, for instance, in the Casey decision. Mm -hmm. 1992? Um, And... Uh, didn't believe that this was really something that was going to happen. And so now that it's here, I think it's fundamentally different because now you're talking about your rights literally being taken away. And we know that this is only one part of the extreme radical agenda that Kevin McCarthy is going to implement if he is the Speaker of the House. Currently the House Minority
1: Leader. Soon, if the Republicans win, it appears he would be the next Speaker of the House.
2: Yes, and he's already said that he wants a federal abortion ban with no exemptions. We saw in the concurrence that Justice Thomas wrote to this decision that he thinks that they should now overturn the right to marry who you love, the right to contraception, the right to choose how you have consensual adult relationships with each other. Um, This is just one part of the extreme radical agenda that they've already told us they're going to enact if they get into power. And I can tell you, I represent a lot of Republicans. Mm -hmm. And I talk to them all the time. That's not what my constituents want. What my constituents want is how to make the cost of living here in San Diego more affordable, how to make sure they can pay for child care, how to make sure that they are building the kind of future they want for their children. They don't want this extreme radical agenda either.
1: What do you think the structure of government takes on when it wants to be so deeply involved so intrinsically involved in these deeply personal private decisions what does government begin to look like
2: you know it this is where i'm deeply deeply concerned about the privacy implications because how do you enforce these rules that are about your personal private life you have to have the if government some state
1: laws say From fertilization how do you know when fertilization begins
2: well that's exactly right that's exactly right and for a party that claims they're the party of small government it seems pretty hypocritical to then have government need to be involved in every personal decision that you're making
1: practical political question you said some were lackadaisical I covered the Obama presidency The first two years of that presidency had a 60-vote majority in the United States Senate. It had more than 260 votes in the House of Representatives. Things could have been proposed and passed and signed. They were not. Was that administration, led by President Obama, vice-presidented by Joe Biden, complacent?
2: Look, as a young person, I think that There was a lot more we could have done in those first two years than we did, and that I think people took for granted that we were going to continue having a majority. At the same time, I will say that just because we had a Democratic majority does not mean we had a pro-choice majority. And in fact, 2018, or the election of 2018, so the Congress starting in 2019, was the first time we actually had a pro-choice majority in the House. And so it's not that President Obama and Vice President Biden and Speaker Pelosi didn't want to make sure these things got done. Even though we had Democratic majorities, we did not have pro-choice majorities.
1: So it wouldn't have happened anyway.
2: That is what I'm told from people who, who were, were there. were there at the time. Yeah. Right.
1: It's a fair point. But you don't know until you push. And now, that from your, if I hear you correctly, now is the time to push, even if you can't win. I mean, you're not going to pass it in the Senate, but you've got to try. You've got to push, right?
2: Well, I think there's a chance we will pass it in the Senate. Because, like you I do. said, before it was a hypothetical. It might be taken away. Now it is taken away. And I have to imagine that's going to change some people's minds.
1: So let me ask you about a couple of other... Supreme Court decisions. The day before the Dobbs case, which is the case that the court used and chose to hear for, we now know, the express purpose of not only upholding that Mississippi law, but overturning Roe v.ersus Wade, right. it announced a decision in a gun case in New York, where it said under the Second Amendment, there really can't be very much state regulation of concealed carry weapons. What's your reaction to that decision?
2: thought it was exactly wrong and the very logic they used in that decision they then used the opposite of in the jobs decision so it's clear that this particular court is not about the constitution it's not about stare decisis which is the idea that they stand above politics but actually is just using their raw political power to enact an agenda that they've been trying to do for years legislatively and haven't been able to
1: do you see that same agenda in the case announced this week that said it was improper for a school district to fire a football coach for praying after a game?
2: Absolutely. And let's be clear what that case was about. It wasn't that the football coach himself was praying, it's that he was forcing his players to pray with him after the game. Very different. I'm Jewish, so I'm a religious minority in this country. And I can tell you, I went to public school here in San Diego for my entire schooling. I can tell you how important the protections I had to not be forced. To into someone else's religion while I was at public school. And I'm very, very worried about what that decision means for the separation of church and state and, this, and the whole idea of what our country was founded on, which is that this is a country where if you believe in the Constitution, if you believe in democracy, you're an American regardless of your religion, regardless of your heritage, regardless of what language you speak.
1: Justice Sotomayor said in her dissent that Yes, it was prayer. Yes, it was after a game, but it was a coercive action in that, okay, you're on the team. You don't kneel after the game. What does everyone else think about you? It is a collective implied, though not stated, coercion. Is that how you see it?
2: Absolutely. Look, my brother played football at Torrey Pines High School. Uh, I know it was a arrival to the high school you went to, although different time than when my brother was there. And I don't know what he would have done if his coach had told him after the game that he had to kneel and pray in a Christian to, prayer. In a Christian prayer. Um, as a Jewish athlete. I, as a Jewish athlete. That's exactly right. It is inherently coercive.
1: And you can't un feel uncoerced. You can't. Even it's if your the coach. coach says, it's okay, you can stand over there. Who wants to stand
2: over there? Also it's high school. Right. I mean, like, you're very concerned about <laughs> what other people place think about on you. Planet Earth. Yes.
1: Remember, ladies and gentlemen, Congress is just like high school, but not as mean.
2: That's that's mostly right, yeah. <laughs> I actually tell people often that everything I needed to know about being a successful member of Congress, I learned being a, a girl in high school.
1: Being a girl in high school. All right, Sarah Jacobs is our special guest. Original 40 Brewing Company is our host restaurant. We have some tater tots, which the congresswoman is going to eat on camera, I promise you, <laughs> and some very tasty olives. I'm Major Garrett. We'll be back with more on our conversation not only about legislative issues some san diego lore some political stuff when we come back segment three of the takeout in just one second
3: Ah. the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center thanks to carvana it doesn't
1: get any better than this
0: CBS News. This is The Takeout with
1: Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. You know, I tell you all the time that you've got to ride the wave of the show. I'm going to say that, especially here in San Diego. And what is the wave of the show? The wave of the show is left and right and center, and you've got to ride it. Why? Because I ask that of you. Last week, who was a guest? Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of State. Who was the guest the week before that? James Comer, conservative Republican from Kentucky. He may be the chairman of the Oversight Committee. We're going to talk to our guests about that in a second. This week, Sarah Jacobs, freshman member of Congress. Would you describe yourself as a progressive Democrat?
2: I would, yes. I'm a member of the Progressive Caucus and the New Democrats. That's
1: the wave, ladies and gentlemen. And I thank you on great radio stations around this country, Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, all the great podcast platforms, CBS Streaming, for riding that wave. I don't pander to you. I don't tell you the same thing week after week. I don't book the same guest week after week. I'm not predictable. You've got to ride the wave. Thanks for doing that with us. Should President Biden run for re-election?
2: I believe so, yes. He should? I think he is our best chance of keeping the White House in 2024.
1: Not every Democrat believes that. Why are they wrong?
2: You know, I think that uh, many people have many different opinions. Um, uh, I am proud to be led by President Biden right now.
1: When you look at his poll numbers, what does that tell you?
2: Well, it tells me that people are experiencing a, a lot of difficulties right now uh, and that those are very real. We can't message away the fact that prices are high, that, that people... Gas prices
1: are insane here.
2: Y- yes, it's California. Gas prices are very high here. Right. Um, but I also think that... Uh, people understand that as difficult as things are now, Democrats and President Biden are the ones who have a plan to make things better. And Republicans, have an extre- Republicans in Congress have an extreme radical agenda that's not going to bring prices down. It's just going to cut taxes for the wealthy and corporations and continue to erode these rights that even the majority of Republicans support.
1: You want President Biden to run for re-election. Is there any doubt in your mind that he will?
2: Uh, he has been very clear that he plans on running for re-election.
1: Very good. Um, As you know, Speaker Pelosi, who I've known for many, many years, I've covered her, she is a historic figure, there is no question about it. Whether you like her or dislike her, ladies and gentlemen, she's the only woman to be Speaker of the House, and she's the only woman to be the Speaker of the House twice. Okay? That is a monumental achievement in the history of legislative politics in our country. Fact. Not arguable. You may disagree vehemently with her politics, but she is a historical figure. But she is frequently asked... Uh, Madam Speaker, you're in your 80s. Your Majority Leader Steny Hoyer is in his 80s. Most of your leadership is of that age. Isn't it time for you to go? What do you think about that?
2: I will say as a new member, as one of the youngest members of Congress and one of the youngest women ever elected to Congress... Speaker Pelosi has been an amazing mentor and has really helped me lead within the House and has helped make sure that my voice is heard when important decisions are being made.
1: And she is a force. She is. Do you sense within the House Democratic Caucus any restiveness about the current leadership structure? And if, in fact, Republicans win, I know it's a hypothetical and every politician loves to dodge a hypothetical, but play with me. If you are in the minority, should Speaker Pelosi be the next minority leader?
2: Well, I think that Democrats across the caucus understand that she is one of the few people who can actually keep our caucus together, can keep us uh, moving in the same direction, and can make sure that everyone's different stakeholder perspectives are taken into account when these decisions are being made. I think it can't be understated that We have a four-person majority. We're not working with 2009 majority. We're not working with FDR majority. The
1: narrowest majority. The narrowest
2: majority. And we were able to pass the American Rescue Plan. We were able to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill. We've been able to pass a budget for the first time in many, many years. Gun
1: safety bill. Gun
2: safety legislation we passed just on Friday. We've been able to pass the lowering cost of Food and Fuel Act. We've been able to pass historic legislation even with a four-person majority. And that's due in a large part to the leadership of Speaker Pelosi.
1: So, when you think about the coming midterms, Republicans want to say one word, inflation. What is your answer as a House Democrat in a new district seeking re-election if all you hear on television and radio ads is inflation?
2: Yeah, look, I, can't, I hear from my constituents all the time about how the high cost of Groceries and gas is really impacting them, and we can't we can't minimize that or say that that's not happening. But for families here in San Diego, the cost of living has been unaffordable well before the pandemic and well before this this uh, increase in inflation. And part of the reason why the increase in the price of gas and the increase in the price of groceries matters so much is because their budgets were already stretched so thin because of the cost of housing and the cost of childcare and the cost of health care. Those are the things I hear the most about from my constituents. And so do you want to make sure that childcare becomes more affordable? Well, I can tell you House Democrats have a plan on how to do that and House Republicans voted against it. And you want to talk about inflation. One of the the things that will actually help with inflation is if we address child care, because we know that millions of people are out of the workforce because they can't find or afford the child care they would need to work. And we know that's impacting inflation. So yes, inflation is a problem. And we are the ones who have a plan to address it.
1: So do the uh, tattered remnants of Build Back Better factor into that? Do you imagine, let me ask the question directly. Yeah. Do you believe any parts of Build Back Better, tattered remnants though they are, will pass should pass and can pass before the midterms
2: absolutely we are currently negotiating on a reconciliation bill will it have everything i want no it will not what
1: tattered remnants will be in there
2: I think it will include some things on energy, which will be very important. Uh, I think it will include uh, some things on uh, ACA subsidies and health care.
1: Affordable Care Act subsidies. Affordable Care Act
2: subsidies. It will include tax reform, uh, and it will include uh, something on prescription drug pricing. And I'm currently working to make sure that it also includes child care because we know how important that is for families.
1: Sarah Jacobs, freshman member of Congress, as you and I both know, there are about 23 days legislatively left in this year. That's going to get done in those 23 legislative days. Absolutely. Because it's imperative politically and from a policy perspective for Democrats to get their act together, to put it bluntly.
2: I think everyone understands the urgency of the moment that we're in.
1: Mm-hmm. Defeat can focus the mind or the threat of defeat or the anxiety about defeat can focus the political mind.
2: And the fact that this is not a hypothetical anymore. We are seeing very concretely what Republicans in Washington are going to do and trying to do.
1: So, uh, what do you think? We talked about gas prices a second ago. The president last week said, well, we should have a federal gas tax holiday. Now, you know and I know in February the White House said, that's a gimmick and we don't need it. But sometimes, again, to go back to that phrase, the prospect of defeat can focus the political mind. What was once a gimmick is now a solid White House policy proposal. What do you think of it?
2: Well, um we are very concerned about the price of gas. We know it's really impacting people and frankly impacting low-income workers the most who often have to commute the farthest in uh, cars that are less new and so have worse gas mileage. So we are currently looking at all of the proposals to how to bring that down. Uh, Getting rid of the gas tax is one of them.
1: I know you're looking. Yes or no?
2: Uh, I personally have some concerns about how to make sure that that would actually get down to the consumer and not just be a subsidy to the oil company but I think that that's something we could potentially be able to address in the legislation.
1: Are you worried that it would just increase demand because prices would go down and people have to buy gas anyway so you're not really reducing demand you're just putting, you're, you're just switching where the, the, the revenue goes.
2: I think it's clear that low-income workers right now are being unduly impacted by the price of gas.
1: And they need something.
2: And we cannot move to a clean energy future. We cannot try and balance what's going on on the backs of low-income workers.
1: So you're skeptical, but you might vote for it.
2: That's right. And I think what we're doing here in California is a good example of what's possible. The the governor and the legislature reached an agreement to give rebates directly to families. So they who can qualify. Use, who qualify. That's right. Who could? Who, they can use it for gas, for whatever else they need to use it for. Um, I think there are a lot of things we can do, and we're looking at doing them all. And the House already passed the Lowering Food and Fuel Cost Act.
1: So we got about 45 seconds before we go to our next break. So start your answer. I will not require you to give it all. But you know your Republican critics say President Biden's to blame. If he would only encourage more domestic production, we would not have these supply shortages. So it's the president's fault we have high gas prices. Start your answer. I'll let you continue it on the other side of the break.
2: Of course, you do this with 30 seconds left. Um, I'm such a mean person. The fact of the matter is, this year and last year, the U.S. was a net exporter of oil, which means that the size of the domestic supply is not the issue. It's a global market supply problem.
1: Wow, you did that in less than 30 seconds, you see. That's what we call a talking point, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Major Garrett. Sarah Jacobs is our special guest. Original 40 Brewing Company is our home. It's our host restaurant in my hometown. That's what I meant to say. Segment four in a second. What
3: makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion
0: CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
1: Welcome back to The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett in America's finest city. Look it up. It's called San Diego. I was born here. I love it. Sarah Jacobs is our special guest. We're at the Original 40 Brewing Company. They make beer in those things, those really big shiny things behind me. We're having water in Diet Coke just to keep it sane. So, something interesting has happened in this state this year with progressives. There is currently uh, a bit of a dogfight for the mayor of Los Angeles, Karen Bass, your colleague, He's trying to win that race. It's in a runoff. And already in San Francisco, progressives, a district attorney, and members of the school board have been recalled. Outside observers say this is a shockwave, and even progressives can't stand progressive politics. What do you think is happening? Give me your candid, hard- hardened political assessment of what's happening.
2: Look. Californians and progressives are not a monolith and there are a wide variety of people who are part of the movement and that's important. It's a big tent. We want to include everyone. But I think it's important to recognize that there are many people in different communities who have different things that they care the most about. And, you know, if we're not addressing the things that are directly impacting people's lives right now, then we're not doing our jobs as policymakers.
1: So when you're a school board member in San Francisco and you're more focused on renaming schools than either curriculum or responding to parents freaking out about online education, you're missing the mark.
2: Well I don't think that it's I don't want to oversimplify it, but you know that was a big deal. I don't think it's a binary choice. I think that we have to be able to do what we need to do to move the ball forward on social justice while also addressing the things that are impacting people right now. And if you lose sight of one or the other, you are not serving your community well. And we as as progressive lawmakers need to be able to do both.
1: And the district attorney who lost in San Francisco, for those outside observers who were clucking their tongues were saying see. Democrats, progressives particularly, are either indifferent or soft on crime, and that's a national message Republicans can ride to victory. What do you say?
2: Well let's look at the research about what actually reduces crime. What reduces crime is investments in communities, in after school programs, in child care, in making sure communities have what they need in streetlights. There are a lot of things that reduce crime that are good for our communities and focusing on this tough on crime message that we've tried for many, many years and clearly has not worked is not really going to be the solution. So let's focus on solutions that actually work.
1: But you know as well as I do, shop owners were interviewed in downtown San Francisco and said they were sick and tired of smash and grab. And when you see that on television, you see that on security cameras, people understandably get nervous. And there was a perception the DA wasn't leaning into that, wasn't saying, hey, I'm going to stop that. Fair criticism?
2: I think you can't ignore what people are feeling, whether or not you agree. Or, and seeing. And seeing. Whether or not you agree, it's what's happening. One thing that's really interesting, both if you look at uh, data on the economy and data on crime, is that most people will say they themselves feel okay, but they're worried about what someone else is experiencing, what, what they think is happening in the country. And so you can't, you can't ignore what people are feeling... And there are ways to channel that fear in ways that we know actually are successful in addressing the challenges that they're talking about that aren't just performative and this sort of tough-on-crime messaging that just criminalizes the very communities that uh, are going to need these investments the most.
1: So this week, in addition to many other headlines, the country, I believe, and I certainly hope, experienced a collective gasp when it read headlines out of Texas about a very large tractor trailer in which the numbers now could be approaching and maybe they've already exceeded 50, but there's certainly more than 40 migrants who died inside a tractor trailer trying to enter the United States. Immigration is an important issue in San Diego. It's an important issue nationwide. What are your thoughts about that? What are your thoughts about the underlying politics? Already the governor of Texas is trying to blame this on the president. I will note for audience's benefit, there were trailers in which migrants died twice during the Trump administration. I don't remember the governor blaming President Trump at the time. Just note that. I'd like your thoughts.
2: Look, I think that representing San Diego, uh, a proud border community, My, my current district goes all the way down right up to the border. Um, We know how important immigration and immigrants are to our community, to our economy, Uh, even my Republican constituents. the entire
1: history of the city.
2: That's right. Even my Republican constituents here who are very conservative know that they want immigration reform because they need workers for their small businesses. So we know how important immigration is here, and we know that what... What folks here, my, my Republican constituents, want here is not reflected by what Republicans in Washington are doing or saying on immigration. This, we're not, the crisis is that we have people who are fleeing for their lives who are so desperate that they're willing to get into that tractor trailer knowing the potential risks. They're so desperate to come to our country that they're willing to do that. That's exactly the kind of people we should want here. And frankly, under both domestic and international law, people have a right to seek asylum. That is a legal right people have to seek asylum here in the United States. So if you want to talk about law and order, let's talk about the actual law, which is that people are allowed to seek asylum here. Now, I think that that, that incident, which is horrifying really shows the limitations of Title 42 because what's happening is not that people aren't coming across. They're just coming across in ever more desperate ways and it's really just helping the cartels who now have basic full control on the other side of the border. Title
1: 42 is a public health measure that has been exercised, was exercised during the pandemic by the Trump administration essentially saying you can't come in because of a public health concern related to COVID. The Biden administration had announced plans to Take it away. But then Republican governors sued and a federal judge stopped it. So Title forty two continues to place this barrier. And I've read many analysts of immigration law who say that has therefore created a mentality that if you show up, you're gonna be stopped, so you've got to find ways to not be stopped. Going through less trafficked areas, possibly inside a tractor trailer truck.
2: That's exactly right. It's an inhumane policy. And frankly, whatever you think of our immigration policy we shouldn't be enforcing it using a public health order. That should be about public health. And we know that it's not about public health because we're letting certain kinds of asylum seekers in, we're letting Ukrainians in, we're letting other folks in. So if we want to talk about immigration, let's talk about immigration, but let's not use a public health order to avoid actually having the real conversations we need to have about the kind of immigration reform we need in this country.
1: So it's a simple question. I think I know your answer. Do you feel immigration, and specifically those who are undocumented, have been villainized in the last five to six years in our political rhetoric?
2: Absolutely. I was visiting a third grade classroom, and I was talking to a young girl who told me she's afraid every day that her parents might get taken away from her. When I'm knocking on doors and campaigning in my Latino communities in my district, We don't knock on the door because so many of the kids have told us that they think that every single knock on the door is ICE coming to get their loved ones. That's what we're doing to our communities right here in San Diego.
1: So a knock on the door itself is a traumatic event.
2: Yes, if you are always worried that someone is coming to take your mom away.
1: And you've experienced that. You've talked to these children. You've talked. Do you, do you ever get a chance to talk to the parents to hear them?
2: I do, yeah. Reaffirm that as well. Yeah.
1: Sarah Jacobs has been our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. Uh, we want to spend a minute to thank Original 40 Brewing Company for being our host. San Diego's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place to hang out. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. But for those listening on podcasts and watching on CBS News streaming, stay tuned for the takeout outtake of where the Congresswoman is going to eat a tater tot. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week.
3: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
0: From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major
1: Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm still Major Garrett. That hasn't changed. And we're still at Original 40 Brewing Company in America's finest city, my hometown of San Diego. Out here on a separate assignment. But guess what? We found a way to have the takeout right here at home because San Diego will always be my home. Sarah Jacobs is our guest. Congresswoman currently of the 53rd District. If she wins re election, she will be the Congresswoman representing the redrawn 51st District of California. So, before we get to the fun and games part of this, you need to eat a tater tot on camera. So go for it, Congresswoman. All All
2: right, this is for you, Major. All right, there we
1: go. All right, there we go. Well done. All right. We call this a fun and games part of the program because three threshold questions we've asked almost every guest. couple of exceptions. Mike Pompeo slipped through my fingers. We'll get him back another time. So take these in whichever order you prefer. Okay. Most influential book in your life and why. All-time favorite movie. You're here in San Diego. You're going to take a long drive or a long flight. You're on a flight back to D.C. to go to House of Representatives. And you're really going to groove on some music. What music, artist or genre is that most likely to be?
2: All right, I'll go in reverse order. Okay. Music is Taylor Swift.
1: Taylor Swift, all right.
2: Yes, my fellow 1989er.
1: (laughs) 1989er, yes, indeed.
2: Yes. Um,
1: Is there a favorite Taylor Swift song?
2: Ooh. That's a
1: hard one. I know that's not easy.
2: Probably Blank Space. Yeah, yeah. Um, But really, all of them. Yeah. Um, Movie is uh, Legally Blonde. Why? Why? Um, because when I was uh, growing up here in San Diego, it was one of the first uh, movies I saw that showed me that you can be feminine and girly and also be really smart and really good at your job.
1: It was an empowerment movie. That's right. Most influential book.
2: Um, probably "Algorithms of Oppression." Whoa! All okay. about how uh, by uh, Sophia Noble, who, who's a um, professor uh, at UCLA all about how uh, the digital world we live in actually contributes to inequality uh, and that these technology tools are not neutral. uh, And it really helped me think about what we as policymakers need to do to make sure that these new technologies are actually building the world we want to see.
1: Algorithms of oppression. That's right. Did that book, getting back to our very first topic, inform your perspective on the My Data, My Privacy Act?
2: Uh, In part, yes. Yes.
1: And briefly summarize what algorithms do from this book's perspective and how they increase or just maintain inequality.
2: Both. So uh, basically what algorithms do is they're an equation. So yes. You put, you put something in, you get something out. We often think of them as neutral because we think of technology as neutral. Right. But in fact... It has no
1: inherent biases, but it does.
2: But it does. It has the biases of the people who are creating the technology. Right. So what this book did is it did a study of Google searches where it would Google, like, black girl and see what comes up after it or native woman or Asian woman and see what came up and showed, like, if you Google, for instance, professional hair, you see a white woman. And so it shows just, like, how the the things we don't even think about are shaping our world, are contributing and, in fact, exacerbating the inequality we already have.
1: Because... What you search and what you find is what's reinforced. That's right. Interesting. So who's your grandfather?
2: My grandfather is Irwin Jacobs. What did he make? He founded Qualcomm.
1: Big employer here in San Diego. Uh, they are, yes. Big backer of your campaigns. Uh, yeah. So I read that you're the fifth most self-funded member of Congress. Is that so? Yeah. Is that a good thing?
2: Look, I think we need fundamental reform of our campaign finance system, and I think that it's clear that the system is very, very broken in many, many ways. I feel very grateful that because of my family and the legacy my family has had here in San Diego... Huge, huge
1: legacy in San Diego.
2: ...that I have no job except to faithfully represent my constituents. I don't need to...
1: Dial for dollars. I don't,
2: I don't need to take money from anyone I don't want to take money for, from, and the only people I have to listen to are my constituents. And in our very broken system, I think in many ways that can be an advantage.
1: Right, that's what I was really getting at. I'm not trying to put you on the spot in the sense yeah. that lots of members don't have family wealth, they don't have individual wealth, and they do have to raise money. And I'm not suggesting there's anything unethical about raising money, but it is a task. And an ask for money is ask for money. And if you don't have to ask anybody for money, there's a part of your job that, no long, that doesn't exist. And I wonder if that gives you a clarity.
2: Look, I think we need to create a system. And I'm not, I
1: don't, you're not, and I'm not asking you to disparage those who have to no, make no, the no. calls.
2: Listen, I think I'm we just need asking to, yeah. you.
1: Do you think it gives you clarity?
2: I think it's very helpful that I only need to listen to my constituents. I also think we need to build a system where we have people from all walks of life who can serve in this job and can win election. And right now, the system is really, uh, really hard to do that in. I mean, members of Congress haven't had a pay raise in like 20 years. And we have to maintain two residences. I mean, people do that with children. Single moms do that. It's really hard. And I'm very lucky that my I have privilege and, and I'm able to, to do a lot of these things. But we need to make it so that more people are able to be involved.
1: That is Sarah Jacobs, our special guest here in my hometown of San Diego. One more time, our thanks to Original 40 Brewing Company. That's it for your Takeout Outtake Especial. Folks, I will see you As always, next week.
0: The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanan. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News.